As we look at the prayer that we have been looking at, the model prayer, the disciples' prayer, and we look at it again and again, as we have done, I imagine it'll strike us that every petition that we can consider in the prayer, it centers on something that God has already guaranteed to us. In other words, every petition rests upon His promises. And so it is that when we bring these petitions that we are instructed and guided to do here, when we bring them to the Lord, we're not begging God for something that He is so reluctant to give. We're simply laying claim to what has already been promised to us. For example, it is God's design and desire that His name should be hallowed, that His kingdom should come, that His will should be done. Now, given the fact that that is God's desire, then when I pray, I know I am praying according to the will of God, and that prayer will be answered. He has already promised that He will give us our daily bread, that He will grant us complete forgiveness of sin through Christ, that He will guide, that He will direct and lead us, and He will do so away from evil and on to the path of righteousness. So, all that we are praying for in this complete prayer, each petition of it, it rests already upon the promises of God. So, we couldn't have a more sure, solid foundation than what we have here. Let's remind ourselves, therefore, that what we are praying for here is simply claiming what already has been pledged to us. So, what does that emphasize for us? Simply this. The more we understand of the promises of God, the richer our petitions will be. If it is a policy with God, and it is, that when we want to lay a claim that He has already provided for in the Word, the light is green. Go and pray that blessing down. The premium has been paid for by Christ. The policy is ours. The provisions are rendered through Him by the Spirit on our behalf, and what we have to do is go and present the claim. Our text tonight, in the thirteenth verse, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, focuses first of all upon what we're calling the primary, and that is forgiveness is the first but not the final step in the Christian life. It is the first, but not the final step in the Christian life. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think of the woman who was dragged into the presence of Jesus Christ, charged before him with a terrible sin of adultery, John 8, and the verse 1 through to the verse 11. And so we have all of our enemies are crowding around her. They're almost carrying her to make sure they get her to Jesus and charge her. They're clamoring then for an instant and a decisive 
punishment, and we find our Lord writing on the ground and rising only to say, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And that statement came with the part of a sledgehammer on the hearts of every single one of that woman's brutal accusers. And so they fear off the scene one by one, and they leave that sinner alone with her Savior. Now, his word to her was one of great compassion. Neither do I condemn thee. Here was pardon for her black sin, forgiveness for her shameful past. But having forgiven her, our Lord didn't allow her to leave that scene without sending a command her way. Go, he says. And as he dismisses her with that word, he says, go and sin no more. She was set at liberty, but not to return to the old life of folly and of shame. Now, that's how God always operates with us sinners. Forgiveness, full and free, is to be had for the asking. Bring our sinful, shameful past before Him, our terrible debt. Tell Him of our total inability to pay, the burden of guilt and the pain we have that's crushing our heart. He will not, as He promises, He will not turn us away, but with words of compassion and tenderness, He'll welcome us in. Take that burden of sin, of guilt, of shame, and He will remove it completely. He will have mercy upon us. He will abundantly pardon. But forgiveness of the past is not all. It's the first step, not the final one. What about the future? It's exactly as our Lord said to this woman, go and sin no more. The person forgiven should not be wanting to return to the old ways of sin. And when forgiveness comes, that's a signal that a life of combat and conflict has now been entered, a life of struggle and striving against the world and the flesh and the devil, a battle that is relentless. And as one has said, after the blotting out of the shameful past comes the earnest striving to keep the record of the future clean. After forgiveness, this process of sanctification begins, of purifying ourselves through the Word, working out, Philippians 2 and 10, our own salvation in the power of God the Holy Spirit. The battle has been entered. The conflict has begun. So forgiveness isn't the end, rather the beginning. And you can see that. The connection here between Matthew 6, verse 12, and verse 13. Petition number 5 and petition number 6, in other words, that we have here. So, the first, number 5, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and here's the connection, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, what do we have here in 12? Forgive us our debts. That's a prayer that God will blot out the record of our past pollution. But then when we move into the next verse, verse 13, lead us not into temptation. We have a prayer here for future protection. 
past pollution, future protection. There were some in the very early days of the New Testament church. And they interpreted all of this freedness of forgiveness that God was giving as being a license to sin. They said, what does it matter how we sin then? Because this God, He is so willing to forgive. They even thought in a kind of a really twisted way that if we sin and sin and sin, we're kind of doing God a favor here because by continuing in our own wicked practices, the greater our sin is, the higher the mountain of iniquity we pile up, then the finer the opportunity for God to keep displaying His forgiving love. They sinned. And Paul writes, they said it. It's that grace might abound. We just keep on sinning so that God can show even more grace. And some people still have this really twisted notion. I'm so glad my past sins have been forgiven. It's wonderful to know God keeps on forgiving us. I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm going to live it up, and there will be no boundaries, because I'm going to sin so that grace may abound. And why should I care? Because I'm already guaranteed forgiveness anyway. That is not the genuine line taken by a true child of God. According to this prayer, We don't simply want our past sins forgiven. We have the desire that future iniquities should be avoided. Because as a Christian, we have a different attitude to sin. We should pray, thank you, Lord, for forgiving all the sins of my past, and please deliver me from future sins. The sinner whose iniquities have been forgiven longs to be delivered from the tyranny to sin and of sin in the future. He's well aware of what sin has done to him all through his past, and he doesn't want to be swamped and submerged by it all in the future still. God, he knows, has been very gracious to me in cleansing me from sin, and I'm not wanting to push and push and push His grace as I travel on. The church has been harassed and troubled by many heresy over all of its lifetime, through all the centuries, but probably none has been more dangerous or obnoxious than what is called the antinomian heresy, which is simply you live without law. It tells man to sin on because God is ready to forgive. It teaches man that sin is light and it's trivial and it's cheap because pardon is free. Sin light, sin cheap, sin trivial. Let's look at the cross of Christ and see how light it is. Measure the enormity of sin by the sacrifice of the cross. It cost the life of God's only begotten Son to deliver us from it. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven to let us in. 
So will we continue in sin just so that grace may abound? The program of the Christian life is pardon, sanctification, increase in holiness, and that's this whole daily battle that we're engaged in against sin. I'm not saying, and I never have believed it after about 12 years of age, that we'll this side of the grave reach a state of sinless perfection, or we'll ever come to a place in our lives where this prayer, forgive us our debts or sins, will not be relevant and needful to us every single day. But the goal is before us. The target has been set. God has put it up. And although on this earth we're never going to fully attain to it, yet every day I should aim for it. And I would want today to be better than yesterday, and tomorrow to find us further on than today. There's something radically wrong if sin has as great a power over us today as when it did before we were saved. Repentance can't be genuine, can't be sincere, unless it's building within us a loathing and hatred of sin. There's no doubt this command is not an easy one to obey. It's difficult hard. It's a task. In fact, it's impossible. Impossible. Because with the world like it is, and we as we are, the task is impossible. And so, we need to throw ourselves on the Lord and cry, Savior, we would obey Thee. But we find ourselves in precisely the same boat rowing with the same oars that the Apostle Paul did when he cried out in Romans 7:19, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. We want to live without sin, but we are weak, and the world and the devil are strong. Have pity on our weakness. Lead us not into temptation. Thou who knowest, all my weakness, Thou who knowest all my care, while I plead each precious promise, hear, O hear, and answer prayer. So, the primary that we have here, forgiveness is not the final, but the first step. The problem is the world's temptations. This world is full of temptation. The word that's translated temptation in Matthew 6 and verse 13, it can mean testing, it can mean trial. God does not tempt in the way that we would interpret the word temptation as tease, attract, draw, set a trap. God does not tempt us in inciting us to do evil, but He does test. He is not, and never can we say it, He is not the author of sin. We should never allege that He is. But the presence of evil in the world, the incitements to evil that are flying about us on every side, they are tests of character, tests of our strength. John Bunyan 
depicted the Christian life in a tremendous and gripping graphic fashion in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And so, journeying through this dangerous country, Pilgrim encountered snares and pitfalls on every side, a ditch here and a quagmire there, the slough of the spawn, bypath, meadow, doubting castle, the mount of error, broad way gate, dead man's lane, vanity fair, to name but some of the locations that presented huge difficulty to the pilgrim. And we can identify with Bunyan's leading character. Without a doubt, the path that we must walk is surrounded with perils, and to wander off, left or right, doesn't require a lot of effort or much thought. It's pretty natural that we do that. An old story concerning the fight between the English and the Scots at the Battle of Bannockburn says that Bruce, on the night before the main battle, he honeycombed the ground in front of his army with pitfalls. And each of those contained a hidden stake. Then they were covered over with green turf. And in the morning, the English cavalry, when they charged on the Scottish troops, they discovered that ground that looked to their eye so firm and solid was actually deceitful and treacherous. And they fell into those hidden traps, and horse and rider met a grisly fate. Do you ever feel that's the way you're walking in this earth? that that's your spiritual trek. Human life is dogged with temptation. Nobody can say, well, it hasn't happened to me. I'm exempt from that. Why is it that godly parents are so anxious as their children are growing up and going through various stages and getting into the later years of primary school and secondary school and colleges of further education and university and out into employment. And they're not merely thinking about the mundane and the material and the physical and the petty issues of the day that come everybody's way. They know, which is why they're so concerned, that temptations abound all along the way. They've gone this way before themselves. They know the temptation of the pubs and clubs, of the gambling dens, of the wild parties, of the houses of impure entertainment. They realize temptation is all around. Temptation in the companionship of foolish friends, in the filthy speech that they will regularly hear in unclean literature and films, in business, in work, and home. It penetrates everywhere. It snaked its way into paradise right at the very beginning, brought down Adam and Eve under its power, and nobody has been immune from it ever since. When there's an outbreak of a serious disease, Men and women usually move away from the place of infection. And men and women in the past tried to escape, as they saw it, the assaults of temptation. 
And they did it by cutting themselves off from the busy world around them and cloistering themselves and finding these places of isolation and solitude. There was Simon Stiletis out on his pillar in the wilderness as a hermit, isolationist. And he felt, that'll keep me away from all the sinful influence. And of course, it was all in vain. Our own heart is so corrupt, it only needs to exist on its own for temptation still to be felt and sin to be engaged in. And this whole concept became the basis of the monastic system. And of course, we know how that has carried itself on over the generations of time. Does not work. Is no barrier to the heart of sin that we have in its activity in our lives. So we thought of the primary, forgiveness, the first step, not the final, the problem, the world's temptations. And we have in final thought here the propensity, our difficulty in resisting, the propensity. Lead us not into temptation. That's the prayer that we have here, but deliver us from evil. Why are we praying this? Why is this so vital? Because we are so prone to cave into temptation. The fact that temptation is just blowing about us like the breeze around us. The fact that that's happening wouldn't be such a problem if we were not so prone to yield to them. It's because we're so liable that temptation is so terrible. Take a spark to a piece of green wood, and very little will happen. But take a spark to a piece of dry tinder, and you'll have a fire on your hands. Bringing temptation to you and to me is like applying a flame to a pile of dry wood shavings. It's like bringing a match to gunpowder or pressing the detonator of a bomb. The plain countryman who'd been saved by God's grace through listening to a sermon on Zechariah 3 and verse 2, and the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? He was later, after conversion, accosted by one of the old buddies who had gone along to him, along with him to the public house and got drunk alongside him, time without number. And he put argument after argument up to him why he should still be traveling with them into the public house. The saved man pushed back every one of the arguments. And then he finally said, you know what? I am a brand plucked out of the fire. Now, his old companion hadn't a clue what that meant, but the saved man explained. He said, look, there's a great difference between a brand and a green stick. If a spark flies upon a brand that has been partly burned, it will soon catch fire again. But it's not so with a green stick. 
I tell you, I'm that brand plucked out of the fire, and I dare not venture into the way of temptation for fear of being set on fire. The attack of the temptation from the outside is only made formidable by the weakness and the treachery that is inside. And it's because the Savior knows our weakness, and He knows how liable we are to collapse under every test and trial that He commands us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because He knows none of us is safe from temptation. Dr. Pendleton, Lawrence Saunders, they met together at the beginning of Queen Mary's reign in England, and they knew that dark days were coming. And they talked about persecution on the horizon. And Saunders was terrified. And he showed a lot of weakness and fear. He expressed that in the conversation they had with one another. But Pendleton, on the other hand, he boasted of his resolution that I'll be able to take even the most severe treatment rather than forsake the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth that I own today. Not long after, the feeble, faint-hearted Saunders, through the grace and great goodness of God, he sealed the truth with his blood, while proud Pendleton played the despicable apostate and became a papist. I quote an old Congregationalist preacher, J.D. Jones. There is no one, he said, who can boast that he is strong enough to resist every allurement. There is in all of us some weakness of the soul, and temptation will assail us just at the weakest point. It will find the unfortified place and concentrate its attack upon that. It will find the joints in our harness and point the poisoned arrow there. The old Greek fable tells us that Achilles the great hero of the Trojan War, was dipped while he was still a child in the waters of the Styx by his mother Thetis to make Achilles invulnerable. The result of the plunge was, according to the legend, that every part of Achilles' body was proof against wounding except the heel by which his mother had held him. It had not been submerged in the waters. And for many years, Achilles goes through battle after battle unhurt. But eventually, the poisoned arrow of the Trojan Paris find the weak spot, the Achilles heel, and inflicted the death wound right there. Sin and temptation attack us where we are weakest. Our inclinations appeal to them. Our passions are lusts, and they worm around until they get that weak spot. I look through history, biblical and secular as well, and I only find one right through all of history in this world 
who was foolproof against temptation, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He could not and He would not be tempted to sin. And theologians will tell you, He could not, could not be tempted to sin. Lead us not into temptation. He didn't have to pray that, but He makes sure we do, because we need it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, that's not a prayer for the, the weak or a petition for the coward and somebody backing out when the going is getting tougher, a cry from the heart of a weaker brother. This is appeal, an appeal for all of us. I think of Abraham, whose faith is commended in Scripture, but he lost it in Egypt. Moses, a man renowned for his meekness, but blew a gasket when he smote the rock more than what God had told him to do. David, the man after God's own heart, swept away in a tide of terrible wickedness. Peter, who felt he would go all the way with Christ, but when tested, found he was just like any other man. And those examples in Scripture, centering in each case upon men who did significant things for God, tell me, don't be boasting in any supposed strength you think you have, because pride always precipitates a collapse, and there's that weakness in all of us we should distrust distrust our own hearts all the time. Can we count the number of times where we have fallen? Now, God does allow trials. In spite of our fears, in spite of our prayers, He may see fit to bring in a test in that sense of the word, even a fiery trial. And we'll be right in the crucible as Abraham was on Moriah, Genesis 22, as Job was for a significant portion of his life, beginning in Job 1, the record, as Christ was out in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, the angels came and ministered unto him. And those kind of trials we don't want. We naturally shrink back from them. But do you know what they do? They knit sinews of strength to our souls. There is nothing sinful in being tempted. It is yielding to the temptation that is the sinful thing. And say God does allow us to be tested in this fierce and grim and deadly conflict, what will we do? Well, that's when we really lean on the second part of Matthew 6 and 13, or the section we have been looking at, the second half of it, deliver us from evil. Lord, help me. Stop me from yielding. If temptation comes against us, when we're walking in the path of duty, Lord, deliver us from evil. And your margin in the Bible will probably give you the alternate reading. 
deliver us from the evil one. With Christian fighting a long, arduous battle with the polio. But he won the victory at last. Why? Because, as we have it in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation, trial taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. And I love the words in 2 Peter 2 and verse 9, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And he did it for Christian. And when Christian came through victorious, he was able to stand and shout, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Deliver us from evil. By prayer, link yourself to God's almightiness. Take him with you into the conflict. And every fight shall end in victory, every struggle in triumph. And these very temptations, when vanquished and overcome, shall help to make us strong men and women of God in Christ. Then we'll be able to say in James 1 and 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yes, complete deliverance won't happen here, but the chains of sin can be increasingly loosed. But absolute deliverance will come over there. Sometimes we sing it, safe in the arms of Jesus, safe from corroding care free from the world's temptations. Sin cannot harm me there. But Lord, on the way home to there, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.